if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 8. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. Mark chapter 8 in your Bible. And as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in Montgomery County and Loudoun, Prince William, Arlington, others online. It's good to be together around God's Word, particularly after such a heavy week in our country and on this Memorial Day weekend as we remember and honor, particularly in our church family, personal family members and friends who have given their lives protecting the freedoms that we enjoy, freedoms that we do not take for granted, this freedom to worship, freedom to proclaim the gospel, and we honor those who have given their lives for these freedoms by stewarding those freedoms to the full, by worshiping to the full, and by spreading the gospel with the opportunities we have, which leads right into the text we're in today. So I'm going to start with a question for each one of you in this room and other locations online, right where you're sitting, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Everybody has an answer to that question, some kind of answer. And how you answer that question will determine everything about your life today and tomorrow and for all of eternity. Who do you say Jesus is? And I know that for some of you, you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you've come today with a friend or family member or joining in or just on your own online. For those of you who participated in our last congregational meeting, I shared about somebody in the lobby here at Tyson's one Sunday recently who shared with one of our elders, I had a dream this week and a man in the dream said I needed to come here, so I did. And long story short, that person ended up putting their faith in Jesus. So some of you are new to church. You're not sure who Jesus is. And I sincerely pray today that this would be the moment when God opens your eyes to see who Jesus is. But not just you. There are others. I'm convinced many others who've been around church for a long time, maybe even most of your life, yet you still haven't seen who Jesus really is. You've seen and maybe even believed in a picture of Jesus that is either inaccurate or at least incomplete. And you desperately need God to open your eyes to see who Jesus really is. Because your life for eternity depends on it. And we're going to talk even more about that next week for those who may have been around Jesus for a long time. But let me show you what I mean today. The last two weeks we've read Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 26, a story about Jesus healing a blind man. And I shared a couple of weeks ago how this is a unique story and that Mark is the only person in the Bible who tells us this story, not Matthew, Luke, or John, when they're talking about the life of Jesus. And the healing of this blind man takes place in two stages, unlike any other miracle that Jesus performed. 
So let me read it again. I'll put it up here on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you, just to catch up those of you who may not have been here the last couple of weeks. Starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, the Bible says, they, talking about the disciples with Jesus, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, in this story, it's pretty plain. A man goes from not being able to see at all to being able to see some to being able to see perfectly. And the whole story is obviously about sight. It's interesting. We don't actually notice it in the English, but there are actually eight different Greek words for sight and seeing that are used in verses 23 through 25 here. And the point is, there's a lot of emphasis, even in the language, on this idea of sight. So, why does Mark tell us this story about a gradual healing of physical sight at this point? in his account of Jesus' life. Well, look around the context in this story, what comes before and what comes after. In the passage right before this, if you look up in verse 18, you see the disciples in a boat with Jesus, and Jesus looks at them and says, having eyes, do you not see? And then, here in verse 23, that's the exact same Language he uses when he looks at this blind man, he says to him, do you see anything? So this is our first clue that Mark may be telling this story about physical sight to help us understand spiritual sight. Because the disciples, at the first part of this chapter, are spiritually blind. They're not seeing who Jesus is. They need their eyes opened. So Mark tells this story of a physical sight, a man receiving physical sight in two stages, and then read what happens next in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, this is interesting. Here's a picture of people who don't see Jesus correctly. Their picture of Jesus is inaccurate, incomplete, kind of like seeing people, but they look like trees walking. People see Jesus, but they think he's a prophet or Elijah from the Old Testament or John the Baptist come back from the dead. They don't see Jesus clearly. So Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And those four words signal an incredibly significant moment in the book of Mark and in the life of these disciples. Because up until this point, God and demons are the only ones in the book of Mark who have acknowledged who Jesus actually is as the Son of God, or specifically the title here is the Christ, which means the Messiah. This is the first time in the book of Mark. We're in chapter 8. We've been studying this book together since last fall. This is the first time 
that a disciple says who Jesus really is. Peter and the disciples are beginning to see what other people don't see. Now, I mentioned we're going to talk about some of this more next week, Lord willing, about how even the disciples' sight is incomplete, even at this point. But this week, I want to pause and consider the significance of this moment, this statement, not just for Peter and the disciples, but for you right where you're sitting right now. And for me in our lives and the significance of this statement for the church, even specifically this church. Because this question, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Is critical for you, for me, and for this church. On two levels, if you're taking notes, you might write them down. One, we need to see Jesus according to his word. We all need to see Jesus according to his word in a world where all kinds of people have all kinds of wrong thoughts about Jesus. Many people, probably most people who have heard of Jesus, think he was a religious teacher, a good man, a champion for the poor and the oppressed, who cared for those in need, by all accounts, a good teacher who gets a bad rap because of what a variety of people do in his name. Muslims would take things a step further and say Jesus was a great prophet. Hindus might even go so far as to call him a god. And I should pause at this point and say that if you're a Muslim or a Hindu here today, you are welcome in this place. We hope you find Christians and our church family to be hospitable to you and honoring of you, even as we have a very different understanding of Jesus than you. An understanding that we prayerfully and lovingly hope you will see that Jesus is not merely a prophet and Jesus is not just a God. But these thoughts that people have today about Jesus are clearly not new. The disciples tell Jesus here, some think you're a prophet, or a great religious teacher like Elijah or John the Baptist come back from the dead. Evidently, there was some mystery around who Jesus was. But then Jesus turns the question on them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And the emphasis on you there is clear in the original language of the New Testament. What about you? It's like he's looking them straight in the eyes. What do you think about who I am? And in response, Peter, representing all the other disciples, says, You are the Christ. And I mentioned this word means Messiah. That's a reference to the one God had promised for centuries who would come and save his people. Now, just to get a feel for how significant this moment is, I want you to also hear how Matthew tells this story. So hold your place here in Mark chapter 8. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 16 where Matthew recounts this same story. And I want you to hear what Matthew says right after Jesus makes this, asks this question and Peter makes this statement. So whenever we see different accounts of the same story in the Bible, we get different perspectives on different details and their significance. So listen to what Matthew writes, starting in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. So just one book back in your Bible to the left. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says... When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, you'll recognize 
this almost verbatim. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then look at what happens next. So that's basically what we just read in Mark chapter 8. Listen to what Matthew tells us. Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So let's stop for a moment and think about what this means. A true understanding of who Jesus really is does not come naturally. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't figure this out on your own. No, Jesus says, my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Now just think about that in light of the story of the blind man back in Mark. That blind man was able to physically see because someone else opened his eyes. In the same way, these disciples only begin to spiritually see Jesus for who he is when the Father opens their eyes. Mark it down. We can only see Jesus for who he is if God supernaturally opens our eyes. The story of every single Christian, every single follower of Jesus is a story of God doing in your life what you could not do on your own. On your own, Christian, you were spiritually dead. Not kind of dead, partly dead. Dead. In the darkness of your sin. Until one day, by God's grace, he supernaturally opened your eyes to who Jesus is and he brought you to life. I know I've told it before. It's one of my favorite stories of conversion, so I'll share it here again, of how Charles Spurgeon, so one of my favorite preachers in church history from England, came to faith. He had been doing all kinds of work to try to earn his way to God, to do what he could to save himself. Until one snowy Sunday morning when he wandered into a church where a guy was preaching who had hardly ever preached before, and this is what Spurgeon recalls. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, because this man was really stupid. <laughs> he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. 
My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he, in broad Essex. Sorry, I don't have the uh, accent to be able to do here. But many of you are looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing else to do but to look and live. Spurgeon said, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was, no doubt, all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Has this happened to you? Has this happened to you? Has God opened your eyes to look and see who Jesus is? For some of you, I believe God has brought you here today. It's not snowing outside, and I hope you don't think I'm stupid, but God's brought you here today in this moment to open your eyes to who Jesus is. To look and see that though you have sinned against God, as we all have turned aside from God, 
and his ways to ourselves in our own ways. And though you deserve, along with all of us, eternal judgment before a holy God, God loves you so much that he has sent his son, Jesus, to live the life you could not live, a life of no sin. And then, even though he had no sin for which to die, he died the death you deserve to die. He took the payment for your sin upon himself on a cross, died on that cross, then three days later rose from the grave so that you today, by turning from your sin and yourself and looking to, trusting in Jesus, you can be forgiven of all your sin and restored to relationship with God for all of eternity if you will just look at who Jesus really is. I invite you to see today. May God open hearts and eyes right now to who Jesus really is. And when he does, so now keep going, right after this in Matthew's account of this story, right after Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Then he says, look at verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oh, do you see it? How this question, who do you say Jesus is, is significant for you personally, and this question is significant for the church. Because it's in response to this question, who do you say Jesus is? And Peter's response, you're the Christ, that for the first time in all the Bible, we see the word church. You might circle it in your Bible there. It's the first time we see it in the Bible. So think about why this is so significant. What does it mean for Jesus to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church? What is the rock that the church is built on? Think about it. Is the rock Peter? Is the rock Jesus? Are the disciples together the rock? Is the gospel the rock? What do you think? I believe the answer is yes. Let me explain. What makes this passage kind of confusing is other metaphors are used in different parts of the Bible to describe the church. You look in 1 Corinthians 3.11, we read Jesus is the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus is called the rock. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus is called the chief cornerstone of the church. So there are places in the Bible where rock or foundation metaphors are used to describe Jesus in relation to the church. But then you get to Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, and you see that the apostles and the prophets are referred to as the foundation of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul describes himself and the other apostles as the ones who are building the church. So you have different metaphors at different times in the Bible to make different points. So what's the point Jesus is making here? Well, what's unique here is that Peter's name actually means rock. So there's a bit of a play on words here. Jesus is saying, I tell you, you are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church, which certainly seems to indicate some kind of specific foundation in Peter. But think about it. What was it in Peter 
that made this so significant? Well, you look at the context, what happened right before this, you realize Peter just confessed Jesus is the Christ. And immediately after that, Jesus makes this statement about the church that he's building upon Peter and his confession of faith. The point then starts to become clear. Jesus is saying, in light of Peter's confession, you have confessed who I really am. And upon you and your proclamation of who I am, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, whenever and wherever followers of Jesus are proclaiming the truth about who Jesus is, Jesus will build his church, and nothing can stop it. Which leads to the second major takeaway in this text today, if you're taking notes. In our lives, we need to see Jesus according to his word. And as the church, we need to proclaim Jesus confidently in the world. Confidently, like nothing can stop us. Isn't this the story of the church that unfolds in the Bible after this? Here's Peter, the first disciple to make this declaration of who Jesus is. Now turn with me one other place. Turn me over to Acts chapter 2. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. So turn to the right, you'll go past Mark, then Luke, then John, then Acts chapter 2. After Jesus dies on the cross and he rises from the grave, he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. That happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Then right after that, Peter stands up and starts speaking. In verse 14, he starts, jump down with me to the end, verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. So this is the climax of Peter's sermon. The first time a sermon was preached, and listen to the wording here. Peter proclaims, Acts 2, 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Did you see it? Jesus is the what? He's the Christ. What we read in Mark chapter 8, Matthew chapter 16, he's the Christ and Lord of all. Peter's proclaiming here exactly what he confessed at that significant moment in Mark 8 and Matthew 16. And what did Jesus say back in Matthew chapter 16? He said, based upon that declaration, Jesus would build his church. So what happens right after Peter proclaims this? Look at verse 37. When they heard this, They were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself opens their eyes. Then listen to verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus as Christ. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is building his church upon the proclamation of who he is in the mouth of Peter and the other disciples. As you read the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter, the Roman government is trying to stop the gospel from spreading. Religious leaders are trying to stop the gospel from spreading, but they can't do it. They can't stop it. And that story continues for the first 12 chapters of Acts with Peter at the forefront of the story. But then around Acts chapter 13, 
Peter starts to take a back seat, and Paul becomes prominent throughout the rest of Acts. Yet the gospel keeps spreading, and the church keeps growing. Do you know why? Because the reality is it's not ultimately about Peter or Paul. It's about wherever people who know Jesus is proclaiming who Jesus is, Jesus is building his church, and nothing can stop it. So connect this, even with what we heard last week, on the stage, stories of men and women and teenagers who Jesus is using to tell other people about who he is through school Bible studies, women's Bible studies, orphan care, refugee ministry, furniture ministry. And as they do that work in Jesus' name, proclaiming who Jesus is, what's happening? Jesus is building his church. Like, do you realize what we are a part of as a church, what you are a part of sitting where you are right now as a Christian in a local church? You're a part of an unstoppable force in the world, spreading the greatest news in the world. Just realize what meaning. It's just you're a part of something so much bigger than yourself. Something that is global, worldwide, and unstoppable. And what a good word that we need as a church. Most of you, I hope, know by now, we've been walking through challenging days as a church. This week in particular, we're in a significant moment that hinges on affirming elders this week in our church. If you are a member of this church, it is vitally important that you be engaged in this process and vote this week, starting Wednesday, between Wednesday and next Sunday. And as I say that, I obviously want you to have confidence that these elders know who Jesus really is and love him and will lead this church to proclaim Jesus confidently here in our city, around the world. Because if that's not happening, then Jesus won't build his church. If that's happening, Jesus will build his church. And it's obviously impossible for thousands of people across our church family to personally examine the biblical qualifications of every potential elder, which is why we have a process that's set up for anybody who serves in this role first to be nominated by members in our church who observe the qualities of an elder in them. And I should add that each of those men is also recommended to be an elder by the location pastor where they are. Then we have a group of church members from different locations who gets to know these men, examines them. It's called a nominating committee, makes recommendations to the elders based on that. Then our current elders spend time examining them. And if, after all of that, all of these people believe somebody is biblically qualified to be an elder, then they're presented to the church for affirmation. So here's the deal. You can find out information about six elder nominees uh, at mclanebible.org slash elders. But as I was walking through this text this week, I thought, how helpful would it be to hear just a few of them share about the moment when God opened their eyes to see who Jesus really is. And no pressure to come up with a Spurgeon-level story to these brothers. But, and you're, you're going to have an opportunity to hear for uh, all from all these elder nominees on the congregational meeting on Wednesday night, but I've asked three of them to join me up here today, and I just want you to get a glimpse of how what we're reading here is happening in our church family, how people are seeing Jesus for who he is and proclaiming Jesus, and Jesus is building his church. So 
I'm joined up here on the stage by Human and Patrick and Sasha. And I would just say, one of my favorite things to do whenever I sit down with a brother or sister in Christ is just ask them the question, how did it happen for you? When was the moment when God opened your eyes to who Jesus really is? I would encourage you, as you sit around with each other, whether it's in church groups or sitting over lunch, if you, if you are spending time with another believer and you don't know the answer to that question, how did it happen for you, then ask them that question. I, when did it happen for you? So that's simply what I'm going to ask them right now. So uh, I don't know if we have enough lights because you guys are in the dark. I tell you what, let's move over here. I think we were having some problems with the lights, so let's move over here and we'll just... Tell you what, we'll just forget the stools. We're going to stand around this right here in the glowing light that's coming down, and uh, I'll try to stay in. Okay, here we go. So, Human, you step forward a little bit. Tell us, how did it happen for you, bro? I mean, you grew up in an Iranian Muslim household. How did God open your eyes to who Jesus really is? Yeah, thanks, David. Um, yeah, traditional Muslim family, uh, sort of nominal, but uh, just by God's grace, when I was six, uh, a neighbor uh, encouraged, urged my parents, you know, who knows, uh, to send me to a private Christian school, Fairfax Christian, which was on Hunter Mill Road at the time in Reston. And I started going there through eighth grade, and uh, my fourth grade teacher, Miss McCoy, you know, prayed with me the sinner's prayer. A family, the Hoffmans, took me under their wing, took me to church every Sunday. But it wasn't until my sophomore year of college through a roommate of mine, Sam, that loved the Lord. And uh, he, you know, the first week of sophomore year of college, he said, here's the gospel. And the second week, he said, come with me to church. And the third week, he said, let's go to a men's Bible study. And, you know, by way of background, there was a lot going on leading up to that. Through high school, my freshman year of college, I, you know, I joined a fraternity and I was just living for myself and things got really bad. My grades plummeted. I almost got kicked out of school and I was really at a point of desperation. I, I really was. And the Lord used that probably one of the worst, lowest points in my life to draw me to himself. And one day in a, in a church service, you know, I remember the pastor preaching and, you know, preached, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And I had heard the gospel, obviously, every day in that Christian school and every Sunday leading up to that. But it wasn't till sophomore year, winter of 2023, that, as you said, you know, the, the spiritual scales fell from my eyes and I saw my, my neediness, my brokenness, I repented, and I put my trust in the Lord. And, you know, he, he just, he, he overwhelmed me with his grace and showed me that, you know, as Jeremiah 33 says, that I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I've maintained my faithfulness to you, as he did since a young age. And, you know, by God's grace, two years later, my, one of my roommates, another Persian guy, Shervin Tabrizi, grew up in even more of a traditional Muslim household. I was praying for him for two years, senior year. He, too, repented and believed and gave his life to the Lord. And, you know, we're, we're, we're renewed, as you said, from death to life. Amen. 
before, before I move on to Patrick, I just want to make a couple connections. I didn't even plan on making, but as I'm listening to Human Shear, I one, don't underestimate the link in the chain that you are. Like, at six years old, somebody inviting some parents to this, and a teacher having this conversation, and then a roommate. Like, it's not accident, college students, that you're in the dorm room or you're in the apartment you're in just to see God is working in all these things to draw people to himself. And, and then I, I love how even as Human was sharing at the end, passing the gospel on to Shervin, uh, another uh, Iranian Muslim friend, and I think about a couple, it was a few years ago now that uh, Human and I had the opportunity uh, when he was out at Arlington. So for a long time, even when he began, some of this process of potentially becoming an elder was at Arlington, now is with his family at the PW location. So pretty new out there. But uh, I remember a few years ago at Arlington, we had a meeting with a group of Muslim leaders who were uh, from all kinds of different countries across the Middle East who had come and were asking all kinds of questions uh, after a worship gathering one night at uh, Arlington. And we had the opportunity to share the gospel with them. It's just, again, no accident. Here's, here's Human from a Muslim background saying to these Muslim leaders, hey, let me tell you how I saw who Jesus really is. So, praise God. All right, so let's move on. Patrick. Patrick, when did it happen for you, brother? How did, how did God open your eyes to who Jesus is? All right. Well, standing behind here now instead of stool, I feel like saying if you have a Bible yeah, somewhere else. Anyway. Uh, so it's not time for you to preach. That's not for just, share, okay. just share. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, just like Human, um, I, too, uh, was saved when I was in college. However, unlike Human, I, I did grow up in a Christian family. As a nominal Christian, just attending service regularly, reciting Lord's Prayer weekly, uh, but spiritually blind. And fast forward, going fast forward, when I was in college, going back to where Human was, this was my second year as well where uh, life was good. Uh, first two years of college was just like anybody else. Many of you may have experienced as well. It's very, very different. Uh, it's freedom. Uh, you can do whatever you want. And you're away from the family. So I was, intri- I, I was really into the social scene. And study was not part of my college life. It was more of going here and there. Uh, more of a drinking, more of a party. Uh, if there was not a party, I'll go ahead and open one myself. So that was kind of kind of deal we had for a couple of years. Then, uh, and, and the life was not so good. Uh, grades start going down. Uh, the relationship between my father, who sees my transcripts, uh, was not that good either. And one day, uh, one of the sisters that whom I knew from high school approached me, and I remember this very well. She came, approached me, and says, um, "Brother, can you come and sit next to me in my Bible study, which I just started?" Uh, there is a man uh, who's, a very, who's a believer, but he tends to disrespect how women are leading the Bible study and tend to disrupt and go against whatever we say. Can we just sit there? At the time, I'll just give you background, I had the David Carradine kind of look, and uh, I had a reputation of being like Chuck Norris. Um, <laughs> well, I guess, I guess uh, age, you show your age, you understand who they are. So I did have that age, so uh, there was a little fear factor. So when I sat in the Bible study on a weekly basis, it worked. Uh, the man was pretty quiet. 
He did not disrupt. He did respect. And weeks went by, weeks went by, weeks went by. And I'm just sitting there like statue of Buddha, stone face. I mean, there's nothing that was getting in my mind. But guess what? Uh, the Word, God's Word, is indeed living and active. Um, it is sharper than two-edged sword. And it did penetrate my dividing soul and spirit. And in due time, those words worked through me, and I went through a struggle because one side of my heart was, no, this is not what I want to be. Even though I know who God is, this is not a life that I want to commit. On the other side, there was a God pursuing me, keep nudging me, pulling me. So that night, one night, uh, I went home after Bible study. It was about midnight. I was renting a basement in a row house in a city, and I just could not sleep. I was, ta- I was just uh, tossing and turning for an hour or so. Then all of a sudden, uh, this is a man have never prayed before. Out of nowhere, out of nowhere, I started praying in a poetry in a way that I heard the others pray and was amazed. How can they pray like that? And this prayer lasted about, a, about an hour, and it's supernatural. It wasn't me. And I knew right then, God is real. He's living. He's active. And he's pursuing me. So right away, I went back to the school. It's a 24-hour open library I found. And read the first entire 28 chapters of Matthew. And this is the first time I opened the Bible and read it. And the very last two verses in chapter 28 was more, it was very convincing to me. And hit my heart, which was the Great Commission we recite every week. So thereafter that, God convicted me and softened my heart to do so. So those places that I went for a party, passing out shot glasses, now I was passing out tracks. Um, so praise God for that. And God has worked so much more through that, and I just don't have time to take David's spot here in the pulpit. Uh, but all glory to him. It's not me. Everything's supernatural. So somebody who has so much doubt, so much unbelief, he had to come in that way to convince that he exists and he loves me. It's all good. Glory to him. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Before you step back, like I, God opened the eyes of college students and specifically sons and daughters who were concerned about whose hearts are hard. God softened their hearts and opened their eyes. Um, and then I, I, I cannot say enough about how the gospel is spreading through this brother among uh, I mean, work he does in the inner city and housing projects, work that he does every Friday night leading an international Bible study with people from all over the world who come together learning English and learning the gospel at the same time. And then the way this brother, like God saved him radically and has used him, radically led him into I'll just say some very closed countries in the world, the kind of places where if he's caught, uh, would most certainly be put in prison and may not come home and bold with the gospel. And we want elders who protect the church like Chuck Norris would protect the church. You'll never look at Patrick Lee the same. You'll be like, Chuck Norris, Patrick Lee. All right, Sasha, let me invite you, brother. How did it happen for you? When did God open your eyes? Thank you, Pastor David. I was born and raised going to a South Indian church in Toronto, 
and I outwardly confessed Jesus Christ as Lord well into my 20s, but I bore no fruit, and my lifestyle was very hedonistic. I lived in a one-foot-in, one-foot-out state of cognitive dissonance. I would say my understanding of the Bible was very limited, more of a workspace salvation. My good just had to outweigh my bad. The thing about a hedonistic lifestyle is, is that it really reveals how everything apart from God is empty. I tried to find meaningful community in a variety of places, including, like others, a college fraternity. But everything that I tried was artificial and didn't really satisfy. This path culminated in a long-term relationship with a non-believer who I fancied that I was trying to save. You know, flirt to convert. <laughs> I would have said, Lord, did I not perform many things in your name? Did I not get my unsaved girlfriend to read mere Christianity? You're welcome, Lord. And he would have declared to me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He impressed upon me that I was unable to declare, even on a basic level, what my faith was. I justified everything that I did by proclaiming that it was normal. I was just normal, doing what normal North Americans do. But God calls us to be a people set apart, to be countercultural. I started attending NBC Arlington and immediately got into a small group where I was filled, uh, surrounded by faithful brothers who knew the word and held me biblically accountable. Early on, we studied The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, and it wrecked me how little I knew about the attributes of God and his character. Over time, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that this was the community I had yearned for for so long. Not just my small group, but the entire body of believers who had different callings, backgrounds, sensibilities, and uh, just incredible giftings than I do. Their love for the Lord and the lost is truly inspiring and spurs all of us on to good deeds. The pastors, specifically Nate Keeler and Eric Saunders, walked alongside me and shone a light on my blind spots. And by God's grace, I now have the opportunity to do that for other men and build them up to be leaders and to multiply. Outside the church, God has opened doors for me to get involved with secular organizations and to be a light there and to encourage people there to come to know the saving truth of Jesus Christ. Recently, I was able to share the gospel with a new friend from France. She was able to come to our church group. She learned how to read the Bible from the leaders, and I was able to give her a copy of The Reason for God by Tim Keller. To sum up, the Lord rescued me from a life of destruction and uselessness. And if that wasn't enough, he's given me purpose and allowed me to be an instrument in his plan of perfect salvation. And this opportunity is freely available to all. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen. So just to make sure you made that connection, like this is, this is God's grace in bringing Sasha to himself, not just through this individual or that individual, but through the church, like him seeing the gospel at work in Arlington years ago and seeing the fruit of that in his life. And he mentioned uh, uh, organizations that he's involved with. I, I'm, I won't go into the details because I don't want to embarrass him. Um, I'm going to embarrass him a little bit. And because this brother, and I would say this for all these brothers, 
they are humble brothers. It's one of the things we look for most in an elder, like humble, contrite spirit before the Lord, before others. And uh, Sasha is, uh, would be officially categorized in our country as intellectually elite. I'll just put it that way. I'm told, I know this is embarrassing, bro. And I won't say all the details about why that is, but just, just picture that, that in ways that open doors into a variety of different organizations where a variety of other really smart people who don't have faith in Jesus are. And he is intentionally walking through those doors and sharing the gospel with really smart people, pointing them to the reason for God in all kinds of ways. So, and I would just add, tell, tell them your middle name. So Sasha is, yeah, Sasha Thomas Varghese. Where did your middle name come from? Well, first, thank you, Pastor David, for that incredibly kind comment. Um, as you said, my middle name is Thomas. Uh, this is what I use at Starbucks for my orders. Otherwise, <laughs> if I roll up in there for a cold venti brew uh, under Sasha, there's just mass confusion. Um, so Thomas, my father's name is Thomas, and this is descended generationally from the Apostle Thomas. And when I was younger, I kind of had a negative view of the Apostle Thomas. I thought he was kind of a clown for asking for proof from Jesus. Kind of like, you know, I trust in you, Jesus, but I'm going to need to see some ID. And my father, he's a cerebral man, but an unabashed Thomas apologist. So whenever I would crack jokes like this, he would say, Thomas is a scientist. He just needed data to prove his hypothesis. I came to realize over time as I got older that the resurrection changed Thomas and Peter and all the other apostles. And after the resurrection of Christ, Thomas went east to India and he was martyred there. But our ancestral church was founded in the year AD 52 and has continued to grow there since. So from every standpoint, just geographically from my own prodigal years, it's a mathematical impossibility that I'm standing on the stage before you today. But Thank God that his economy is not my economy, and no one is beyond his reach. Are you, are you making the connection with what we're reading? Like Thomas was there in Mark 8. He was there, sees Jesus as the Christ, or not him, not yet fully. Later, John 20, bows at Jesus' feet, says, my Lord and my God. And then goes to India, proclaims the gospel in India, loses his life proclaiming Jesus confidently, but the gates of hell cannot stop the proclamation of Jesus. And 2,000 years later, Sasha Thomas Varghese is a potential elder in a church in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Praise God. Would you give God glory for his grace in these brothers' lives? And Thanks, guys. And, and in all our lives, like, what's... What's your story? When did it happen for you? And if it hasn't happened for you, what, why are you resisting opening your eyes to see who Jesus really is? Uh, I just want to encourage us today based on this text, based on what God is doing in this church during these days. Let's see Jesus for who he is according to his word. And let's build this church on proclaiming who Jesus is in the world.
confident that no matter what significant moments or challenges we ever walk through as a church, the gates of hell cannot stop the proclamation of Jesus as Christ. This is the story we are a part of. I read this quote this last week, just thinking about all the challenges the church faced in the New Testament throughout the last 2,000 years, all the significant moments. J.C. Ryle said, nothing can overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place, and the true church outlives them all. God, may it be so. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, all across this room, other locations online. Have, have you confessed Jesus as the Christ in your life? If not, I invite you to do that right now in this moment. To say to God, God, I see You're opening my eyes right now, and I see that I've sinned against you, and I see that Jesus is not just a religious teacher, a good man, a prophet, or a God. He is the God, the Lord, the Savior who died for my sins, rose from the grave, and today I put my trust in him. I look to him, and I receive by faith your salvation. Look to him, look to him, look to him. And as you do, and for all who have, God, we pray that you would help us to proclaim the truth about who you are in the city and around the world and to trust that as we do, as your church, even the gates of hell cannot stop the work you are doing in building your church. God, we, we do. We pray for your help during these days of the church and in each of our lives. We're a part of this big picture. Lord, help us to faithfully proclaim Jesus, confidently proclaim Jesus. And we pray that you would draw many more Humans and Patrick's and Sasha's and many others to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.